Euro 2020-21 on the Soccer Gambling Podcast, simulcasting on the Sports Gambling Podcast Network. is presented by Winbet. Get started today and you'll get a risk-free bet up to $500. Terms and conditions apply. Get the details at wynnbet.com and download the app today. We're also brought to you by Roman. Roman is a straightforward way to take care of your erectile dysfunction. Just go to getroman.com slash SGP to get $15 off your first month of treatment. That's getroman.com slash SGP. Also brought to you by PropSwap. PropSwap is America's number one app to buy and sell sports bets. Use promo code SGP on your first deposit and receive up to $500 in bonus cash. That's PropSwap.com and the promo code SGP. Finally, we're also brought to you by the SGPN app. Our app is now live in the App Store and the Google Play Store. The SGPN app gives you easy access to our picks, podcasts, and it's the exclusive place to enter all our contests, including our $1,000 NBA Finals free roll. Just enter SGPN in the App Store or the Google Play Store today. You are listening to your Euro 2020 group stage preview here, looking at the first six games from match day three here on the Soccer Gambling Podcast. You can follow the Soccer Gambling Podcast on Twitter at SGP Soccer. That's at SGP Soccer. You can follow the Sports Gambling Podcast Network at the SGP Network. That's at the SGP Network. And also check out my website, lockbetting.com. Now, We are over halfway through the month, so you will be signing up for picks for just 10 days. We still have plenty of content across those 10 days as we head towards the second half of Euro 2020 with the last 16 quarterfinals, semis and final. Plus, we have the start of Wimbledon, so we will be giving out our futures for that. And we are getting down to the final four in the NBA. We still have a 100% record on one unit plays on MLB. So I have no doubt in my mind across those 10 days, you will make a profit. But it's understandable if you want to wait till the 1st of July as that will be our 98th month of transparent track profit with the 97th month looking like it's going to be in the bag. That's why this service has delivered over eight years of consecutive transparent track profit without a losing month. All the spreadsheets are available at lockbetting.com. It's fully transparent and the pin tweet over at SGP Soccer will always be the PL for the previous month. That's why a PL, an actual spreadsheet which is tracked and transparent, something that these clowns on gambling Twitter have no idea about. And I've been watching these fools complaining about the tournament, complaining that it's a boring tournament, complaining that um, they, some guy saying he didn't want to bet on it anymore and wanted to wait till proper football started with the league season. Well, it's not a boring tournament. It's a normal football tournament. And what happens at this stage, especially in modern day football, you have teams sitting back, formulating a block defense, inviting big teams to break them down. This is tournament football, and this will continue in the latter stages until we get down to all of the top teams. And if we get a team 
sneaking through who have managed to implement this block system properly, then we'll continue to see them playing that throughout the tournament. That's just the way it is. Some teams are inferior talent-wise and they will set up a block in order to get themselves through and contain the other team and neutralise the, the superior talents that they have. It's just how soccer works. To sit there and say this is boring and this is terrible means that you're a fucking idiot and you don't know anything about this sport. And not only do you have no business betting it, you have absolutely no business whatsoever selling picks and calling yourself a capper or an expert. I keep telling people, unless you can hear their voice, be it via YouTube or podcast, and hear them actually analyse things down properly... Do not go near these people. Even if they're giving out free picks, you don't want to lose. Just because picks are free doesn't mean that you should automatically tell them. You're not getting any value if you're three or four units in a hole by following some fraud. That's not how you should be doing things. Unless they can properly analyse games and things make sense like they do here on this show... Do not tell these idiots. Do not give them any money. They don't know what they're doing. Anybody that's sitting there going, oh, this is boring or being angry after a nil-nil or a one-nil game. These are just guys that are tailing overs. These are just guys that are blindly tailing overs. And there are some guys that are blindly tailing data. Now, tailing data is not as bad as blindly tailing overs, but sometimes you're blindly tailing overs because you're taking the overs that have the most statistical data. That in itself sounds like it makes sense, but unless you have a grasp of the overall situation, for example, in this particular group stage, you have three teams going through, therefore it's imperative not to lose games, and you can just pick up one win in a draw and go through. Therefore, even the top teams may set up more defensively and cagey, which is why you get a game like France and Germany going under the total. By the way, my members' pick for that game was France on a pick. Just because we're sitting on here saying, oh, these teams trend towards the over, or both teams should score in this game, doesn't mean that I'm on here giving you anything official. These are all lean. Sometimes I will look at data and I will tell you, Actually, my gut tells you fade this data. And gut instincts are so important in this sport. The eye test, the gut test, it's all important. And to, and to have that kind of insight, you need to watch the game. You need to understand tactics. You need to understand the history. You need to know exactly what you are looking at and have years of experience of doing it. These guys don't bring that to the table. They don't have any gut instinct because they're not real fans. They're not passionate about this sport. They can't do what we do here. We don't, sometimes we've, we've multiple times seen stuff where it trends towards the over and have taken unders. It's okay to take unders. There's going to be unders in this tournament. There's going to be lots of them. There's going to be mismatches where big teams are trying to break through little teams and unders will cash. It's very frustrating here to have a look at these people on there. Have we had the best tournament in the world? Am I coming on here and saying, these guys are trash, these guys are trash, I'm doing 100% I'm having the best tournament in the world? No, we've had some very, very good podcasts. Our futures are in decent positions, but we've had some setbacks. Some of them haven't been our fault. Looking at the, the main ones, this Spain team... They are unbelievably bad and difficult to watch. I cannot believe that he's left so many key players at home, doesn't start the key players that he has, and has gone for this young team that cannot break teams down and just end up passing the ball around from side to side with no penetration or urgency. You cannot predict that. That was a mistake on my part. 
you cannot predict that Christian Eriksen is going to have a cardiac issue and Denmark are going to come out and replay that game 90 minutes later and be completely flat and put our Group B um, futures into danger, anything involving Denmark into danger. And they have been the main two setbacks in terms of Hungary to lose all their group games. Look, Hungary are driven by a passionate home support. And we didn't go too deep on that. It was just the Group F lock and it was hedged out. For those guys that are over at lockbetting.com, they will tell you that um, I liked Hungary to, to lose to Portugal, but I was worried about the France game because I think Portugal were more set up to break down that block as for France that rely on pace over the top. With the likes of uh, Portugal having Bruno Fernandes and Cristiano Ronaldo, I think they had the, the, the better players there to produce a moment of magic to unlock that game over a 90-minute period. Whereas with France... You're very much looking to get in and behind as they did against the Germans. So I took a hedge on that game because I identified Hungary versus France as more dangerous as uh, Hungary versus Portugal. You, that may not make sense to you, but it made sense to me and it was the right decision. So it's been a pretty decent tournament other than some, some teams and certain players completely underperforming. We still have a round of games to go, which we're going to analyze now and we'll see where we're at at the end of the group stage because when we get to the last 16, it's virtually a brand new tournament that we're going to analyze. But before we do that, we'll look at some of those teams that I think are having inherent problems and um, it's difficult to see how things are going to improve. Obviously, I'll start by looking at England. England, I think, were massively overrated as we came into the tournament anyway. I made that perfectly clear, my feelings on England going into this tournament. I said that they were overrated here. It's largely down to them having a, the possibility of a full run of home games. But I didn't see them getting past the second round and going past any of the Group F, Group of Death opponents. And I think I'd be right about that in the long run. And I also didn't like the way that they prepared for this tournament, not knowing the lineup and not knowing how they were going to go into the, how they were going to go into the tournament in terms of how they were going to set up with the formation, completely and utterly wasting those friendly games. And they do look disjointed. Did they beat a top Croatia side? No, they beat a Croatia side that are nothing like the Croatia side that got to the World Cup final three years ago. This team have aged, they've lost players and they've not brought in anybody to replace the gears that have gone out of the team. And that was evident by the way they played against England where they had no threat. And they carried very little threat against the Czechs either. I'd be worried about Croatia getting through to the next round. I don't think Croatia are guaranteed to be in the last 16. So that victory for England really meant nothing other than other than um, getting the hoodoo off your back of breaking the run of never winning the first game in the European Championship. But England are notoriously bad in the first games. That's why it was worth it to take Croatia with a plus one handicap line in there because if England did win, I didn't see them winning by more than a goal. And I was right. They weren't impressive. Despite what the British media turned around and told you about um, Calvin Phillips being the um, Yorkshire Pirlo or Foden being the uh, Stockport Iniesta or the performance of Raheem Sterling silencing the doubters. I didn't see none of this. I saw a very average performance from an average team. I saw a midfield that I would rank as seventh or eighth best in the tournament and they gave examples of midfields that are better and I've been proven right more than right by an absolutely terrible performance by Scotland. So why against Scotland? So why did it go so wrong? Well, here's the thing. You look at these players at club level and you, you try to justify the favouritism by looking at the names and saying, yeah, England are one of the favourites to win this tournament. But other than Jack Grealish, who in this England team is the out-and-out -out star 
of his club side. You could argue Harry Kane is the is the uh, is the absolute star of Tottenham, and he'll command a massive transfer valuation. But there's a lot of players in and around Harry Kane who help Harry Kane be Harry Kane, particularly Song. Without Song in the team. Working hard for Harry Kane, pushing out players with the runs he makes to create spaces for Kane to score goals. It's difficult to see Kane being as successful at another club unless you have the likes of a son doing the work there for him. Harry Kane's success has always been in decent Tottenham sides that provided decent assists. Is Kane a good finisher? Yes, if Kane gets a chance, he'll finish. But he hasn't been able to uh, finish anything in his tournament because nobody's created a chance for him because you don't have Song here in his team and you don't have the assist makers like a Christian Eriksen that he's had previously at Tottenham. So Harry Kane, without the weapons around him, isn't as effective. Is he a big player at Spurs? Yes. Is Jack Grealish massively important at Aston Villa? Absolutely. Jack Grealish should be playing every minute in this England team for what he's done for Aston Villa. He has carried that team. And if you look at the Aston Villa results without him when he was injured, that is more than enough evidence to tell you Jack Grealish can be the man to carry any team on his shoulders. But who else have you got that can do that? Phil Foden? Is Phil Foden as good as that in terms of changing a game and being able to produce individual moments whilst carrying out his responsibilities. His responsibilities are somewhat covered by the protection that he gets from Fernandinho and Rodri. He also has Kevin De Bruyne next to him in the midfield. This is going to make Phil Foden look good because he's playing in an unbelievable side. Can Phil Foden do it if he's playing in an Aston Villa shirt? We don't know, but I'm not too sure that he can. Without the weapons around him, these Premier League players who played for England, aren't as effective without the extra help they're getting from world-class foreigners. Mason Mount is another one. Mason Mount is the guy who occupies the most important position in the England team, which is the free role sitting in front of the three attackers. Now, Mason Mount hasn't had enough of an inferential season for Chelsea creatively to justify him playing in that position. He's not going to be a difference maker. And even at the Chelsea team, when you look at um, Kovacic or Jorginho and uh, N'Golo Kante, the best holding midfielder in the world playing alongside him, he allowed Mason Mount the creative freedom to change games and he still doesn't at a club level. Chelsea's goal-scoring output has been their problem throughout the season and you're putting Mason Mount in this key position to change games when you have Jack Green there who can play in Mount's position and it will give you an extra attacker on the pitch including the likes of a Jaden Sancho or a Marcus Rashford particularly Sa- Sancho statistically is the man who's the best player in the England team to go up against deep line defences. They're defences that sit in tight. Uh, Jaden Sancho's not affected by that. He's able to dribble through and create opportunities. He faces it every week in the Bundesliga where teams sit deep against Borussia Dortmund and Jaden Sancho isn't phased by it. This is exactly what England need. But instead, they go with the likes of Raheem Sterling, who I don't understand how he's a professional footballer, let alone an England international. So none of this makes sense. You have a whole bunch of players who are carried by world-class players at a club level and you're putting them together without a Kevin De Bruyne, without a Kante, without a Song, without Ruben Diaz alongside John Stones to play with him at the back. So without these key weapons, you're, you're allowing these England players to stand alone and to go out there and, and think that they'll actually break down world-class teams. They couldn't break down Scotland. They didn't look good against a lacklustre Croatia. They came in with two 1-0 wins in friendlies where they decided to play squad players instead of looking at their actual team and formation. This was the shittest preparation of any team in the tournament. 
Now, moving away from England, we will look at Germany, who were heavily criticised after the first game. And suddenly, they're now up there as one of the favourites to win the tournament off the back of thumping Portugal 4-2. So what was the big tactical difference here between a team that lost to France and it was the team that lost and a team that lost to Portugal? Well, a lot of it's down to the opposition. Now, Portugal, the way that they set up was very different to the way France set up. France set up with seven across the back defensively. Now, obviously, they didn't play a a 7-3, but they did basically choose to optimise three attackers on the break to try and hit this team in a three-on-three situations against a very, very slow German backline. The three centre-backs are weak unless they're getting full-back cover. And uh, they relied on the on the on the pace of Kylian Mbappe to be able to outrun those wing backs and create the situations against the defence. And he was able to continuously beat them and be dangerous in the box. France should have won that game three 0 The amount of times that they countered this German team who did dominate the ball, but it didn't matter if you've got the ball if, if France are getting it in more dangerous areas when they have a, a big space between your midfield wing backs and your defence to occupy with one of the quickest players in the world in Kylian Mbappe. That was the difference how that game played out tactically. Now, comparing the two games, there isn't too much difference in terms of what Germany did and what Portugal did. It was just a case of who they had available. Portugal was still able to go on the counter and score the first goal. That was through Jota and Ronaldo because that back line of Germany is particularly slow. So it wasn't a case of they completely neutralised the counter in that game. But what Portugal didn't do is they didn't solely rely on Ronaldo and Jota and they still pushed midfielders forward and they thought that their back four could take care of the Germans. Portugal came in this tournament with a good defensive record and Germany didn't look particularly impressive in that game. Well, the difference was telling. Without N'Golo Kante there and without those two holding midfielders giving you more numbers, giving you that seven-man protection that France had, what we saw is a Portugal back four having to deal with a German front three, a, a German midfielder in front, and the two wing-backs pushing up as out-and-out wingers, giving you six players across the box, playing against four, and we constantly saw much, much faster movement here by the German. They were switching. They were going left. They were going right. They were going left. If there was space on the left, they'd go to the left. If there was space on the right, they would go to the right. And they would make those runs, and they would outnumber Portugal every single time. And it's just basic mathematics. If you're facing six and four situations, it gives you a lot more balls to play into the box. We saw those balls play in as, as players were drawn to the ball when they were switched out wide with the quick pace that Germany went in, be it through Kimmich or Goosens getting the balls in. They were exposed to that. They were attracted to the ball, leaving space inside, leaving Germans in the box continuously to tap into empty nets. And that's exactly what we saw in that game. We saw Portugal outnumbered by the fact that they didn't give Germany as much respect as France and put men on the ball because uh, Portugal didn't have the weapons on the counter. France could go into that game and, and come away with a draw and that would have been a positive result. But they had a lot of joy breaking because Kylian Mbappe, was able to exploit a, uh, a five-on-three situation because the wing-backs were outdone by the ball over the top, leaving the three at the back, and Kylian Mbappe was able to cause havoc with his pace and constantly create chances across the box, including particularly that goal that was ruled offside when he squared it across to, to Karen Benzema. That was marginally offside, and I think that particular move symbolised exactly what we saw in that game. Whereas the Portugal game played out very, very differently, especially with these fullbacks deciding to press up even higher, probably because Germany lost the first game and it was more different and it was more desperate. And um, it will be interesting to actually check out the kilometers run by the wingbacks in that game. I haven't checked it going into the show, but I have, well, I have no doubt in my mind 
that they were a little bit more up and down, especially the fact that they were able to neutralise Portugal and to reduce them down to two goals, and they were able to get there and make the assists in the game. I think Goosens and Kimmich are going to be absolutely vital to what Germany do in the tournament, and I think if you're England looking at that, you possibly need to look at moving to the three at the back and allowing your wing-backs to go forward and putting the most attacking wing-backs in the team that you can, which will mean that you'll see Reese James utilised in a completely different way than you saw him utilised in the Scotland game, where he was essentially a waste putting him in the team. That those, those changes were just changes for changes' sake, and they didn't make any sense. Just like Southgate's two teams so far haven't made any sense either. Uh, the last thing we'll look at is Spain. I don't know what to say about Spain here. Um, there's, there's nothing that you can really do other than changing this shitty football, this shitty dated football that you've played for about 20 years. Everybody knows what Tiki Taka is. It doesn't matter if you've got 90% of the ball. You're maintaining possession in your own half for a vast majority of it. That's always going to make it difficult for you to break teams down if they'll just sit in and go, go on, have it. And that's exactly what Sweden done. Sweden have come away with a nil-nil result. They've had the best chance in the game to, to steal it 1-0. And with 84% of the ball, Spain have done absolutely nothing throughout their entire game. Moving on to the next game, they learned nothing from it. They were still slow. They were still unambitious. They still didn't carry much of a threat. Yes, they missed the penalty, but you know that that that's that's just down to the weird way that VIR is being operated in this tournament. We've seen two penalties which would never be given in fast motion. But if you slow things down, a, a tackle where you you catch the man after you make the tackle can be given as a penalty, and uh, a, a winning a header normally the way Lovren did for Croatia can be looked at as an elbow to the face. I mean, we've seen ridiculous people are saying that VAR is being used a lot better in this tournament. Well, compared to the EPL, of course it is because that's been the most dog shit utilization of UAR. VAR across Europe because it takes 45 minutes to reach a decision. But in this tournament, the quickness of a decision has has made a big difference and made it better. But it doesn't mean it's always been right. There's been penalties that have been given that have been incorrect. And there's been um, goals that have been looked at that have been looked at too quickly and have been wrong. The second German goal against Portugal is at least four yards offside when you look at the position of Goosens. So it's not been perfect. It will never be perfect. And uh, I'll, I'll never be a fan at this stage. I think they had this best at um, World Cup 2018. And this system has continued to go backwards. And it's by no means perfect here at this tournament. So moving on to the games we want to look at here. I hope all of that isn't too boring for people when we look at the what's and why's of what's happening here in this tournament. Some people enjoy it. Some people don't give a fuck. You just want me to come on here and, and get on with my picks. So this is the this is the part of the show for you where we are going to move on to these group games. We start with the final games here in Group A, where Italy are going up against Wales. They are the four to seven favourites. It's fourteen to five the draw, and it's six to one on Wales. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And for the last two games, we have nailed Italy and under four and a half goals. I don't see anything different here in this game. We may see a more conservative performance here against Italy as they look towards the last 16, but they cannot, like some teams, rest all of their players because their group is not one because Wales have four points. Whereas if you look at the Holland group that we're going to look at later on, Holland have already won the group. There is no head-to-head differential that can mean that Holland don't win that group. Where Italy can still lose this group here by losing this game. They may concede their first goal in a tournament here if you look at the statistical data as Wales have scored in seven of their 
eight matches at the Euros, but we still have the protection of the under four and a half because I don't see this getting to five. The Italians, of course, have scored in each of their last 11 games coming into this tournament. Italy now have not lost in 23 competitive games and have actually won by two clear goals in five of their last seven competitive games. But... I'm not expecting them to put their foot down here and uh, and try and rack up some kind of uh, big victory like they've done in the last two games. The important thing here really for the Italians is not to lose. And the important thing for Wales here is not to lose either. Both teams are essentially through. They are just jockeying for position. And despite what the statistical data says in terms of Wales managing to score in all these games and, and, and carrying some kind of threat... I don't think we'll particularly see that. I think we'll see two cagey teams that don't want to lose here. The draw benefits both. But in the end, the the magical moment may come from the team with the better players, which is the Italians. And obviously, you're at home here. You have fans that have got tickets. They may not have been at attendance for your first two games. So you're still going to want to impress before you leave Rome. Because after this game, Italy will leave Rome and have to play somewhere else. So you're going to want to have that big win to, to leave your fans with a good taste in their mouth before you go. And I think Italy will get it. And I will tack on the under four and a half goals in this one. Cashed it twice so far already and we'll play it again here for this one. Up next, we look at Switzerland versus Turkey where Switzerland are the four to six favourites to win this game. It's three to one the draw and it's 17 to four on Turkey. I thought Turkey would be the second best team in this group going into this tournament. Um, I thought this game would have a lot more on it. Turkey seemingly look out after their poor results. They're going to need a big swing here on the goal difference to get through, having lost both of their games to nil so far and coming in with a minus five. Switzerland themselves haven't looked particularly good either. They did look good periodically against Wales, but that Italy game was a non-performance. They did come into this tournament as the highest-ranked team in this group, by the way, uh, and they have won five of their last seven. So... I don't know how motivated Turkey will be here. It's difficult for me to see anything other than a Swiss performance. I just don't like the line. I just don't think Switzerland are minus 150 better than Turkey, despite what the results have said so far in this tournament. Yes, Turkey failed to score in three of the last four games. In six of Switzerland's last seven European Championship fixtures have featured less than three goals. So this one could be a cagey affair. Um, Turkey will need to come out at some point and, and attack this game if they want to have any chance of going through because not only do they need to win, they need to turn around the goal difference deficit. So they can't afford to sit in as they have done previously. I just I just think that it's going to play into Switzerland's hand and that will be the period of the game where the game is won by the Swiss. But no real play here for me. It makes sense to take Switzerland. They have more of a chance to go through. They are the high ranked team. They have shown um, decent, they have shown one decent performance against the Welsh uh, for about 70 minutes of that game. So it was, does make more sense to take him and the chances of Turkey going through are pretty unrealistic. But these two teams, I do have them as pretty evenly matched going into the tournament. And it's very, very odd to see this being um, a case of Switzerland need to win to get through. And for Turkey, we're looking at miracles at this point. So I'd probably stay away from this game. But I do think it may be a little bit cagey until it opens up and Turkey decides to go for it. And that's why I think Switzerland can counter and win this game in the second half. Up next, we move on to Tuesday's games. Uh, sorry, we move on to Monday's games. That's uh, Sunday's games. Done. Forgetting what day it is after my surgery. Just because I'm sitting in bed every day. So it's not surprising I don't know what day it is. All I know is I know what games are on every day. But I don't know what day of the week it is. Uh, that, that's kind of a, a weird situation to be in. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you're doing nothing other than lying in one position, that can be the case. 
So on Monday, we have the five o'clocks first. Group C is going to conclude before Group B. This is Holland's group. Holland have already won it. They play against North Macedonia, who are out. Holland are available here at one to three to win this game. It's 17 to four to draw and it's 17 to two on North Macedonia. Holland should heavily rotate here in this game, which is why I like Holland to win along with under four and a half goals tacked in because I don't see any huge score here with a load of your attacking players being taken out of the team. And you also may be a little bit more vulnerable defensively. But I think if you're in a Holland squad, and you're playing against North Macedonia, you should be good enough to win this game. I'm just not looking for another 3-4 goal showing here by Holland. Not a massive, comfortable evening. I think this is rotation. This is a chance for players to come in and show that... Um, that they belong. I don't think it's going to be full rotation given the format of this tournament with this game still being at Amsterdam. Same situation. Some of these teams might not have seen you play at all. So you still have an audience there to captivate before you go off and play somewhere else. So Frank de Boer is not going to want to put out a, a poor lackluster performance. Plus some players may want to play. If you're looking at players that are chasing the golden boot, a Memphis Depay, for example, he may not want to be left out. He may not want to lose too, too much momentum by making 11 changes because we've seen that not work for people. We've seen it in other other sports as well by weeks in the NFL when you're looking at going through to the playoffs and not playing teams in week 17 you can come out rusty so I don't think it's going to be 11 changes I think it's going to be closer to five or six and I still think we'll see a team here capable of beating North Macedonia without ever needing to get themselves into third or fourth gear in this one up next, we got Ukraine versus Austria. And this is a really important game because the, the, the winner will definitely go through. But at the same time, it could be a game that fizzles out as both teams probably go through with a draw. 12 to 5 Ukraine as a favourites, 21 to 20 on the draw, and it's 13 to 5 on Austria. You'll never ever see the draw as a favourite again here like this. The draw is the favourite price in this game. And for me, that makes absolute sense here in this one. There's no need to try and win this game. I think there'll be periods where obviously teams go out and try to start attacks here in this game. That's an absolute no-brainer. But Look, it's only going to damage you to be caught on the counter-attack and to overexpose yourself. Um, this could be a great contender for a nil-nil, which it currently is priced up at 7-1. to The statistical data says Ukraine have drawn four of the last nine games, 1-1. One, one, but um, I, I don't see a 1-1 one, one here. And Austria have only won once in the last eight matches at this tournament. Uh, both teams have scored in Ukraine's last five competitive games. And Austria have won just one of the last eight in the European Championship. Disregard all of that. Um, this, this game's, the, the statistics for this game trend towards the over. The situation massively trends towards the under, trends towards a draw, and trends towards a nil-nil. Now, these frauds that I was talking about at the top of the show, they are not going to identify this situation. They're going to look at this price. And they're going to look towards the over and they're going to look to be taken towards somebody winning this game. Look, a draw is perfect for both of these teams. You are very, very much, well, 99.9% .9 likely to qualify for the next round here 
if you draw this game. If you lose, you put yourselves in a position where you're much, much closer to being eliminated, having only got three points and then being paired up with all the other teams with three points and it coming down to goal difference. It's pointless. I think this game will finish as a draw. I think this game will certainly be low scoring and be under two and a half goals. And um, it doesn't matter what the statistical data says. The situation says there's no need to go out here and do anything stupid. You're both going through if you don't lose this game. Up next, we look at um, Finland versus Belgium, where Finland are available at 10 to 1. It's 17 to 4 to draw, and it's 2 to 7 on Belgium. Belgium are very short here, considering the group is all but one. Belgium will definitely win the group here with a point. And I don't think you need the likes of Lukaku and De Bruyne to get a point here against Finland. Nonetheless, if Finland do win this game, they will have a head-to-head record over Belgium and they will end up winning this group. So I don't think, again, like the Holland game, it's going to be um, 10 or 11 changes. I think he's going to drop six or seven. One of the players I don't see playing is Lukaku because he's very important to this team. It gives more chance to give more rest to the likes of Hazard or De Bruyne. But I think the players that Belgium play will be capable of winning this game. I just don't see any kind of massive landslide here for Belgium where they do Denmark a huge favour and just pulverise this team. Now, this group is wide open in terms of who qualifies from it. It can come down to goal difference between the other two, te- the other three teams and the results against them. Providing Belgium do a job here on Finland and Denmark beats Russia, this group suddenly becomes absolutely wide open. So, That's what the other two teams will be relying on. They need a favour here from Belgium. A point gets Finland through. A point also gets Belgium through, which, as I said, means you probably won't see all of the Belgium starters coming out and playing this game. But I think Belgium will be professional enough to win this game. You also have to look at the fact that um, Belgium have won their lo- nine of the last 11 internationals, so they're going to want the momentum here. And you also have to look at the fact that we have the Christian Eriksen story hanging over us. Everybody wants Denmark to do well. Everybody wants um, Denmark to remain in this competition. Everybody thinks that they were hard done by by the situation we had to continue playing that game. So nothing would make Christian Eriksen happier than to see Denmark staying in this competition. And what they need to do is they need a favour here from Belgium and they need to win their game against Russia, which we're going to look at next. So we move on to it. It's uh, Russia versus Denmark, where Denmark are the three to four favourites to win it. It's 11 to four to draw and it's four to one on Russia. If Denmark play the way that they played against Belgium at the beginning, then they will win this game. There is a massive talent discrepancy here between Russia and Belgium. Belgium are a world-class operation. Russia are not. Russia will be coming here to get the point And that will be the point that sees them through. And Denmark will be the team that are desperately trying to win this game. And if they do start as they start against Belgium, I don't think Russia will be able to cope with them. Russia, though, have only lost once in their last four games, and that was against Belgium, whereas Denmark come into this having lost both of the Euro 2020 matches so far, including that one against Finland, which puts them in this position. The data tells us both teams have scored in four of Denmark's last six European Championship games, but Russia have conceded the first goal in three of the last four away fixtures, which this is. I feel that that data will override the both teams to score data, because once Denmark score, they will set up to protect what they have, and they'll be able to do that more efficiently against a Russia team that carry much less threat than the Belgium team that beat um, Denmark in midweek. So I'm going to go for Denmark to win here on the money line and I think they'll manage to get through and it will be a nice feel-good story for this for this group. 
So that's it for your first half of the games for match day three. A bit of a long one because we looked at the, we, we looked at the tactics of some of the teams here and why they're failing or, or why they're now succeeding. And we particularly focused on the England, Germany and Spain, who have been three very interesting teams in this tournament. We're not going to do that so much on the next show. We're just going to really focus on getting the show done. So at some point, I wanted to sort of analyse this group stage, see where we're at, see where we're at with our futures, so you guys could possibly hedge accordingly uh, with, with certain things. But we'll talk more about potential hedges when we when we look at more at those uh, particular teams, England and Spain particularly, on the next show. Because um, we, we do need Spain to win that group. It will be a terrible result if Spain continue to play as they have done and can't even minute manage to win that last group game. There is a scenario still out there where Spain can still win the group. They are favourites to do so. They just need Sweden not to win and for them to beat Slovakia. But looking ahead, they are ridiculously priced up at one to five here to win that group. So hedge options are available and I'll be telling you how to do those as we break down the final three groups, group D, E and F, the last six games on the next show. And then after that, we will move over to the last 16 as we get down to the meat and potatoes of this tournament. When we get down to the final eight of the Copa America, we'll be covering that as well. But we have been doing Copa America on the LockBetting.com site on International Daily. So far with our leans, we've been wrong about two picks. So we've got two picks wrong so far in this tournament. And one of them was very, very unlucky with uh, Colombia miraculously not able to break down Venezuela and win that game to nil. But um, the the other one, we took um, Uruguay on the double chance against Argentina, who are struggling against big sides, but they managed to break that hoodoo. But yeah, very, very good over there. And if you want that show, head over to lockbetting.com. That's it for me. Good luck with all your bets as always. And thanks for listening.